Well, like I mentioned, we are continuing our way gospel. So our passage this morning is John 8, verses 12 through 20. It will be up on the screen. We have some time up on the screen. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them up and have them ready before you. They are. We have some in, on the chairs in front of you as well. Uh, because it's good to be able to just have God's Word open and to be able to follow along as we go through the passage. So John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right. Because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where's your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Um, Many of you know that I was a a youth pastor for about, technically youth director, um, for about 11 years uh, before coming here. And you know, one of, the, one of the joys and privileges I had of being a youth director was being able to see uh, teenagers say and do things that were way beyond their abilities and way beyond their years of wisdom. And so there would be times when a teenager would come to me and they would say something that would just completely floor me. They would say like, hey, I was reading God's Word this morning and I noticed this. And I would look at it and go, I have never noticed that and this is kind of my living. Um, or they would come and tell me I did something, and I, it would be way beyond what uh, the normal teenager would do. And uh, one of those times, uh, we had this uh, seventh grade girl in, in our youth group, you know, about 13 years old. And she was uh, just pretty new to her faith, uh, pretty immature in her faith, uh, but she was excited about it. She wanted to share her faith, and she had a lot of friends who were non-Christians, and she wanted to try to figure out how to share her faith with them. And, you know, she had some friends who were actually kind of curious. They wanted to know what, uh, what she believed and why she believed it, but she had other friends who were pretty hostile to her faith and kind of would attack her regularly. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the friends uh, kind of came to her with this typical question that, that uh, Christians receive from non-believers is, how can you believe that a loving God would ever send people to hell? Right? I've heard that question, you know, more times than I can count. I'm sure you have. And, and often the people who are asking that question are not actually wanting an answer. 
often they're asking it as kind of a gotcha question, like they're going to trap you. And, and, and the interesting thing to think about is, like, how do you answer that question when somebody, when somebody comes to you? Because we know both things are true, right? We know God is love. God is loving. But we also know clearly from Scripture that God sends people to hell. And so how do we, how do we answer that question? And, and often when, when we kind of get faced with that question, we start to feel uncomfortable, self-conscious, and, and, and a lot of times we start to try to make excuses for God, saying like, well, he's, it's not that bad, and he's not that... Um, uh, but this girl kind of, in the moment, had a different response. The person said, how can you believe that a loving God would send people to hell? And she said, actually, that's not the question. The question is, why would anybody choose hell over a loving God? And I thought, that was a great response. Um, and, and what you have to notice, uh, you know, she said that not because she was wise in general, but because the Spirit was working in her, speaking in her in that moment. And, and, and what she did is she, she flipped the tables of the conversation in a, in a helpful way. Because what, what actually is, is happening in that moment when someone is kind of coming to you saying, I would never believe in a God that... Um, they're really putting themselves in a position of authority over God, aren't they? They're saying, I'm in the position, and if I... And I'm going to judge whether God is acceptable for me to believe in him or not. And so they're putting themselves in the judgment seat and God kind of in the seat to be judged. And, uh, and what this seventh grade girl did through the leading of the Holy Spirit is flipped the tables and said, actually, you don't get to put God in the judgment seat. God puts you in the judgment seat. And you have to determine whether you're going to follow this God or not. And, you know, C.S. Lewis has been talking, was talking about this like 50 or 60 years ago. He said that the ancient man, long, long ago, they approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. But the modern man, the roles are reversed. He's the judge and God's in the dock or God's in the witness stand. And the trial might even end with God's acquittal, but it's, the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Um, it's really an arrogant, prideful position that we put ourselves in. And, and we often think, well, if God can prove to me that he's worthy of me following him, then I'll... And C.S. Lewis is saying, do you think you could put yourself in the position of authority over the God who created you? In a position to, to judge him. And you know, we're, we're going to... The more you, you begin to kind of bring the gospel out into the community, out into the world. Um, you're going to encounter this more and more and more. Uh, the more you hang around non-believers and you try to share the gospel, you're going to encounter this kind of these questions. And, you know, you encounter two different types of people. And it's important to remember that. You do encounter some people who are really wrestling and searching, and they really want to know the truth. And so they're wrestling and they're asking questions because they're trying to figure that out. And you treat them differently. But there are always going to be people who are constantly saying, actually, I'm the judge, I'm the authority, and I will determine if God is worthy. And, uh, and if God maybe lives up to their standards, they think that they'll, they'll follow him. Which really, what are they doing? They're putting themselves in the position of God. 
and saying, if God measures up to how I think he should be, then I will follow him. And, and those, when, when you encounter people in that kind of a position, they're not asking you questions because they want answers. They're asking you questions because they're trying to trap you. They're trying to kind of gotcha kind of questions. And the question is, how do you respond? Uh, how, how, biblically, how are we called to respond when that happens? Um, how do you respond when people are asking you questions but they don't really want an answer? Or how do you respond when people are continually placing themselves in a position of authority over God? And uh, what I want to say is that's what's actually happening in our passage this morning. And so I think Jesus can begin to teach us um, how to respond in those types of situations. And it's very similar to how this seventh grade girl responded uh, when uh, to her friend. And, you know, and as we go to dive into this passage, I, it's been a while since we've been in John, and so I want to make sure we don't kind of lose track of what's been happening right before chapter 8, right? So we're in chapter 8 right now, but Remember, chapter 7 was all about the Feast of Booths, right? Or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the same feast, just different, different names for it. And, and, uh, and Jesus was there. He was at the feast. And, uh, and things were not, like, all rosy for him there, right? He was being attacked. He was be- they were arguing with him. They were constantly, tr- they were repeatedly trying to have Jesus arrested to shut him up and get him out of the temple, right? So it's all constant. Um, and, and there are some people who are hearing Jesus teaching and they're thinking, maybe this guy's who he says he was. But if they start even questioning that, the Pharisees come in and the other Jewish leaders come in and they say, they start mocking them, rebuking them, and making like underhanded threats to them. Like, if you keep thinking this way, you're going to get locked up too with him. And so there's all of this kind of tension going on at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and kind of depending on how you understand some of the timelines in John, and especially this part of John, um, the passage we're talking about now is either going on during the very last day of the Feast of Booths still or possibly in the next day or so after. But this huge feast had just happened and Jesus is saying these words either on the last day or shortly after. But all of that's in mind and, and then all of that conflict. And in the midst of that, we hear Jesus spoke to them again, Right? They keep trying to arrest him. They keep trying to get him to be quiet. And we just keep hearing, and Jesus spoke to them again. (laughs) And Jesus spoke to them again. He just keeps bringing witness. And he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And and even this statement, like often what uh, Jesus is teaching, this is really connected with what's happening during the Feast of Tabernacles, during the Feast of Booths. Uh, D.A. Carson, a commentator, has a paragraph, and I thought it's just easier for me to read what he wrote, kind of describing one of the celebrations that went on during the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, he quotes that someone said, who's not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never in his life seen joy, right? He's saying, like, this celebration that's happening is one of the most joyful things. And then he says that it stands just before the description of the lighting of the four huge lamps in the temple's court of women and of the exuberant celebration that took place under their light. 
Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestra cut loose, and some sources attest that this went on every night of the Feast of Tabernacles, and the light from the temple area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. I always say, the Jews knew how to party <laughs> and, and how to celebrate. And, uh, but, I mean, get, get a picture in your mind. They're, they're in the temple courts, and they're lighting these huge lamps. And this is most likely happening every night of the feast. They're lighting these huge lamps and people are dancing around with torches and singing and praising God. And there's an orchestra going loose and there's so much light coming out of the temple that it says the light from this celebration hit every part of Jerusalem. It was that bright. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, well, I'm the light of the world. Um, the light that comes from this festival hits every corner of Jerusalem, but the light that comes from me hits every corner of the earth. And, and everyone would have made the connection to the celebration. And, um, but he says, more than just I'm like a strong, powerful light, that I'm more of a light than the light of this feast, he says, I am the light. There are no other lights. I am the only light of the world. And apart from me, there's only darkness. And, and when you understand what Jesus is saying, he, he paints a pretty stark, kind of bleak picture of the world apart from him. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what he's saying is, if you're not following me, you're not walking in light, you're walking in darkness. And, you know, I don't know how many of you have ever had to make this trek, you know, you're walking to bed at night and you're flipping off lights on your way to your room, and there comes this point where you have to flip off a light and it's completely dark, but you still have to get to your room, right? And you're, you know your house, like, you have it memorized because you live there, and yet you're still, like, walking with your hands out and running into things, kind of stumbling and bumbling your way through your house, just trying to get to bed. And, and Jesus says, that's actually the picture of life in the world apart from me. Walking around in complete darkness with your hands out, just trying to feel your way around um, running into things, feeling lost, completely disoriented, having no idea where you should go or where to turn because there's just no guidance. You're getting hurt because you're running into things. You're hurting other people because you're running into them. I mean, it's just complete darkness. It's, it's a mess. But, but he also says it's not just darkness, but he says... If you follow him, you'll have the light of life, which means apart from him, you're walking in death and darkness, um, which, which makes sense if you think about, think about living in a world without lights, 
without flashlights. And think about trying to take a journey at night in the dark. Think of how dangerous that would be with uh, animals who can see better than you in the night, right? Walking in the dark is a deadly experience. You could fall into a hole, fall off a cliff, or get eaten by an animal, right? And so death and darkness are always deeply connected. Um, And Jesus says that this is the picture of the world apart from him. Wandering around in death, darkness, lost, confused, hopeless. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And rather than trying to kind of stumble and bumble your way through life, if you follow me, you won't walk in that darkness and death anymore. You'll have light and life. You'll actually have a light for your path to know where to go. You'll have light in your, in your heart is eventually to, to understand what's good and right. And, and, and I will lead you out of destruction. I will lead you out of darkness into the light. And, uh, and I'll bring you back to your God. I mean, it's, it's a powerful picture of what Christ does and how he leads us out of the world. And yet, in striking contrast, Pharisees' response bearing witness about yourself, your testimony's not true. And, you know, to understand the Pharisees, and it's, I think to understand this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in this part, you have to understand that this isn't the first time they've brought this accusation to him. I don't know if you remember, back in chapter 5, they were bringing this accusation against Jesus. Like, we don't have to listen to you. You need two witnesses to prove that you're true, and you're just saying things. There's no other witnesses witnessing about the things that you say are true. And back in chapter 5, Jesus said, okay, you want some witnesses. John witnessed that I am who I say I am. The Scriptures witnessed that I am who I say I am. And everything I say and do is a witness to what I say, who I say I am. So Jesus is like, you want two witnesses? I'll give you three. How's that work out? Um, But that didn't satisfy them. Why? Because they're not actually looking for an answer. Um, This is their gotcha question. Uh, We know this, right, from reading the Gospels. The Pharisees, their goal is always to trap Jesus. We see it over and over. They say this because they're trying to lead him into a trap. They ask him a question because they're trying to entrap him. And so they don't really want a question. They're just trying to get him. And so, so they keep saying it doesn't matter how reasonable of an explanation Jesus gives them about how many people are actually witnessing to who he is. They don't care because they've already made up their minds. They're right. He's wrong. And actually what we're seeing throughout the rest of this passage is that the Pharisees are going to continue to prove that they're in the darkness. And that they need the light of Jesus Christ to be able to see anything. To be able to see Jesus rightly or to be able to see anything rightly. And, uh, and that's why Jesus responds the way he does. Because they're, they're like saying, we need two witnesses to know that what you say is true. And Jesus' response is, even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. I don't need two witnesses. 
He says, "Cause for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you, you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. And again, notice what Jesus is doing here. There, the Pharisees are putting themselves in a position of judgment and authority over Jesus, saying, you need to prove to us, and if we judge, then we'll allow flips it around and puts them in the hot seat and says, actually, I don't need two witnesses. I know where I came from. I came from heaven. I came from the Father. There is no higher authority than the Father. Or there's no higher authority than me. And you guys, you don't know who I am. You don't know what's going on. You're, who thinks, why do you think you have the right to judge whether what I'm saying is true or not? Um, and you can see that Jesus is kind of, kind of done. He, he kind of throws him a bone later on in this, but he's kind of done playing their games, and he says, no, no, no. You don't get to keep putting me in the judgment seat here. Um, you're the ones who need to be faced with a hard reality that you don't see things as clearly as you think you do because you're in the dark. And, and it's really Jesus' way of almost saying to the Pharisees, who do you think you are? <laughs> And Which is why he keeps going on and he says, you guys judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. It's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Right? Jesus keeps pointing to them, saying, he's making a contrast between them and him. And he's saying, you guys are, you judge according to the flesh because you are human beings. All you know is earth and humanity. You can't see rightly. You don't understand what's going on in heaven apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't, you don't understand this stuff. I have come from the Father. I've come from heaven. Um, he says, I judge no one, but what he's saying is, I don't judge people like you judge people. I judge as one from the Father who judges accurately, rightly, with truth. And so, again, he's putting them in their place saying, you don't see things as clearly as you do because you only judge from a humanly, worldly perspective. And I'm going to be honest, I don't understand why he says the next part, because the next part he kind of throws them a bone, and he says, okay, in your lots written that a testimony of two people is true. He says, I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So it's kind of like, I mean, I kind of get what he's doing, because on the one hand, he's saying, Fine, you want a couple more witnesses? I witness about myself and the Father who sent me, who's in me, who speaks through me. He's witnessing about me too. And I think Jesus is saying this to them, saying, Jesus wouldn't say this, but like, how do you like them apples, right? Like, like here's a couple more witnesses. You're not going to be happy about those either, are you? But what's interesting, there's a lot of talk about why does Jesus say in your law? It's written. Um, because isn't the same, doesn't Jesus have the same law? Isn't the law of Moses the, the law of God? Um, why does he say that? And, and I think what Jesus is doing, and that's why I think Jesus is being, he's probably not being as sassy as I'm representing him, I'll tell you. But, but he's being a little sassy. 
Um, and what he's saying is, you guys think you follow the law of Moses, but you've twisted it and distorted it and manipulated it until it's become something of your own creation. Now it's your law. It's not the law of Moses anymore. And Jesus comes to them and says, even in your twisted, distorted understanding of the law, I'm still in line with that. Because there's two witnesses. I'm bearing witness about myself, and my Father's bearing witness through me to who I am and what I'm saying is true. And their response is, where's your Father? Again, not one single commentator believes that this is an honest question from the Pharisees. It's not like, wow, that's a good point. Where is your father? It's more like, hmm, this father that you speak of, can you bring him to us? We would love to see him. Like, bring him so he can witness to you. We, we want to see the father. They think they've got him. They think they've trapped him. Um, and, and they're kind of mocking him, uh, which is why Jesus, again, responds the way he does. And he flips the tables again. They're, again, they're putting themselves in authority over him. And Jesus says what? You know no, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And what he's saying is, even if my father... ...recognize him. Because you don't know him. Because um, if you knew him, you would know me. And if you know me, you would know the Father. And so I could bring my Father and have him stand in front of you and say, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. But the Father did. And you would hear that and you would go, well, that's not true. Because you don't know the Father. And so again, Jesus is putting them on the spot, having to wrestle. And, and I really want to make sure I don't move past that, that statement because this is really, uh, what Jesus is saying to them is really harsh, right? Uh, I mean, think about men who devoted their lives to knowing the Father and following the Father. And they think that they're the... idea who he is. You've devoted your life to this, and you'd have no idea who he is. You have no clue. Um, and actually, if you start to kind of work out that logic, he's saying, like, a true Jew is one that knows the Father, right? And he's saying, you guys aren't there because you don't know who I am. Uh, like a true Jew is one who recognizes Jesus for who he is because they know the Father and they know the Son. And so it's really, it, it's, he's really putting them on the spot, forcing them to come to a point of, of decision. And, and that kind of brings us into this, the, the point that we've been asking. I mean, here Jesus is saying these are, these are men who, who don't know the Father and, and are walking around in darkness and who've distorted and twisted the law. And Jesus is saying to them, how in the world do you think you could ever come to a right decision about who I am? How do you think you could rightly judge me? Right? How can anyone walking in the darkness see anything clearly? 
How can someone who doesn't know the Father actually recognize that Jesus is the Christ? And, and how can they put themselves in a position of authority over Christ when they don't know the Father? And, and yet, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Uh, happens not just among religious leaders. It, that happens too. Uh, but it happens all throughout. We encounter people regularly who say things like, I will never believe in a God who sends people to hell, right? I will, we, talked, we just prayed over a couple of people this morning who I guarantee are saying, I will never believe in a God who allows this kind of evil and suffering in the world. believe in a God who says what I, tells me what I can and cannot do in the bedroom. And, and we, we, we uh, and we don't really call it what it is as most people trying to put themselves in the position of God over top of God and saying if he doesn't measure up to my standards and I'm not going to follow him. Um, and we kind of start to get, you know, I, I've noticed when somebody says these things, we start to, we kind of get pushed back. We start to get kind of awkward and nervous. Like, well, God's, I think he's pretty great. And, and rather than just saying, he's the God of the universe. <laughs> Who are you? Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the analogies that came up um, in my reading this week is if you take this from a different angle, like think about it right now. You go out Packers play today, I assume. I'm not a Packers fan, sorry. But I'm assuming everybody, you know, everybody goes from church and buys brats and cheese and beer and then goes and watches the Packers, right? So you're going and doing that and you run into someone and you're talking to them and they say, you know what? You would never, you will never ever be able to convince me that there's light. Now, would you start getting nervous? Well, I don't know. Like, well, light, I know it's kind of bright. It's kind of, kind of burns your skin every once in a while. It kind of gives life to the world, but I, I'm a little nervous. No. Would you try to, like, give them a scientific explanation for why light exists? No, you would just kind of look at them weird and say, Open your eyes. Like, look. Like, it's clear. There's light. It's all around you. You can't see anything apart from that light. Just look. And, and you know, that there's something where there's, like, evangelism is almost that simple. We make it complicated and feel like we have to do apologetics, and, and apologetics are great. I love apologetics. We have to do all these things. We have to come up with all these complicated answers, and and... And yet, a big part of evangelism is just being able to talk to people and be confronted with things and say, you know what, he's God, and you're not. And if you just open your eyes and see, it's really clear that God created all of this and that God gave you a way to live your life that's not going to destroy you and that you were created to honor him. Just, just look. Stop closing your eyes to it. Just see. And you know, we have to do that as we go out and share our faith. We have to be able to just not feel so awkward and uncomfortable and just be unafraid to say that. But, 
We actually have to learn to do that in our lives first, don't we? Because it's not just non-believers who like to put themselves in the position of God. It's, that's the sinful nature that's always coming after us, right? That's the, that's the part that is, we have to, that's the dying of the old self, is learning to stop saying, no, I'm in the position of God. I know what's good. I know what's right. I'm going to do what I want to do. And we have to all recognize, before we can even really effectively tell other people, he is God and you are not, we have to be able to say that in our own lives. He is God and I am not. And, and apart from him, I'm stumbling and bumbling my way through life. And the more I try to find light apart from him and the, the more I try to do this on my own, the further and deeper I go into darkness and the more obscure the light of Christ becomes in my life. And we have to come to a position of saying, he is God, I am not. And I don't have a right to put myself in and tell him what I should and should not be able to do. What is good, what is bad, what is right in the world. Rather, we come to him and say, actually, you're my God. And you determine what's good and right and bad and evil and what I can and cannot do. You're in a position to judge me. And I'm not going to try to put myself in authority of you. Otherwise, rather, I'm going to come to you with open hands and say, save me. Rescue me. Because I'm completely helpless without you. And because he's in a position to, to show us what's good and right and wrong, and he's in a position to grab us by the hand, shed some light on the path, and pull us out of the pit, and pull us out of the darkness, and rescue us. But, but that comes not from us trying to put ourselves in authority over him. That comes as we say, no, you're my God, and I am nothing. Save me. Lead me. And then trusting that he will do that, that he will lead us out of the darkness, that he will lead us on the path of righteousness, that he will shine light into our lives. And the part I didn't get to spend a lot of time with, but he will keep leading us with light all the way to not just life in this world, but to eternal life. And he will bring you there from beginning to end. And we live trusting that he will do that. Uh, let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence acknowledging that you are God and we are not. Father, acknowledging our own pride that we often think that we are God. We often try to act as if we're God. We often try to act like we're the ultimate authority in the universe. So we ask your forgiveness. We ask your forgiveness for times when we've put you on trial not treated you like the judge over us. We ask your forgiveness for times when we have lived and acted according to our own will, apart from yours. We ask your forgiveness just for our own pride and lack of humility. So, Father, forgive us. Show us grace. Show us mercy. And then fill us anew from here with your spirit. Humble us. Help us to come to you with open hands, ready to trust you, to lead and guide, 
ready to follow you wherever you lead because we know that you are the light of the world. And apart from you, we're trapped in darkness. So, Father, show us the light. Lead us. Guide us. Help us navigate the difficulty and the darkness of this world. And help us to rest in you as we know that you will bring us through this world into eternal life. And all God's people said, Amen.